You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. As you've probably heard, we're getting into a new defence pact, including nuclear subs with the United States. And this show you're about to hear was recorded with Clinton on Wednesday, and we got the news about the subs on Thursday. So rather than do a rushed response to it, I'm going to stay with this show and we'll deal with the subs and the CUSA properly next week. All right, you're with Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial, maybe listening through um, the satellite system in the sky via the podcast network through 3CR Digital. However you're listening, hope you're having as good a time as can be hoped for in this lockdown period. I'm um, joined in the studio again today um, by the same guest I had last week. We're honoured to have him two weeks in a row. Um, but we're going to be talking about a different a different topic today. Um, Clinton Fernandez, welcome back to the the virtual studio of 3CR. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you for having me. The honour is mine. Um, Clinton, it was pretty amazing because after I spoke to you last week, I listened. It might surprise you. It might not surprise you to learn that I listened to a podcast put out by the, uh, the National Security Podcast, which comes out once a week where they talk about different areas of Australian security. And while most of the time I don't, uh, how can I put it, I don't necessarily there, follow their political reasoning, but it's always good to know how they're thinking as well. But this week was um, talking to a bloke um, from the National Archives about uh, David Fricker, about releasing documents. Uh-huh. And... and um, there, there it was coming right in the middle of um, talking to you twice, the second time, to talk to you about some documents which you've managed to get released about um, Australia's involvement in the coup against um, against Allende's government yes. in Chile. Uh, okay, well, David Fricker, of course, is the Director General of the National Archives of Australia. Mm. And uh, he used to be the Deputy Director General of uh, ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. Uh, I haven't heard the National Security podcast uh, that you refer to, but I'm assuming that comes out of the National Security College? Yes. At the ANU? At the ANU. Oh, well, that's important for uh, a reason I'll get into in a second. Uh, But I I tend to refer to uh, them as the National Security, not them, but the people who who come on on these shows as the National Security Chin Strokers. Right. who Who are always stroking their chins and finding ways to... Uh, to, to you know, new ways of of identifying threats to Australia, uh, yeah, but from my perspective, it's good to know how they're thinking. Well, it, there are you're right, and so this is what I I think is of value because there are questions of historical fact, such as what do we do in Chile, and we'll get into that uh, uh, very soon, I'm assuming. But then there are also questions of cultural history. How do the cultural institutions like the media? Uh, the think tanks, these uh, chin strokers and other commentators in the media, how did they react to what they take to be the facts? Mm-hmm. Uh, answering questions of historical fact, uh, it requires long-term effort in the archives. Uh, it requires uh, a certain amount of effort uh, to get your history correct. Uh, 
But answering questions of, histori- of cultural history uh, is much easier since the public record is wide open because yes. we know what, how do the cult- we know how the cultural institutions uh, react to what they take to be the facts. And this area of inquiry is actually much more informative uh, with regard to the implications for Australian foreign policy in the future. Uh, and it has to be said that uh, here the conclusion is grim because all the costs and benefits are assessed in terms of the costs to us. Yes. And if there's no cost to us, it disappears from history. <clears throat> and um, But what do we mean by us in that context? Exactly. Uh, us are the people who are inside uh, the loop. Uh, the question of national security. It, the system is supposed to function well in the interest of those for whom it is designed. And if there's a cost to that, then, of course, it becomes a cost uh, within, that, within that framework. Um, now, on, on the Chile question, um, I, I think there is uh, no question now that the United States was heavily involved in the overthrow of Salvador Allende, but there had always been these rumors. You know, well, to what extent... More than rumors. There was a whole book written about 10 years ago. Yes, yes, but what I mean is the rumors about Australia. Oh, rumors. About our role. Yeah. Uh, the groundbreaking work was done by Brian Tui and Bill Pinwell in 1989 in a book called Oyster. What they had was uh, a version of the Hope Royal Commission's reports, which uh, fell off the back of a truck, highly classified, and that um, allowed them to write a, a history of uh, ACES, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Yeah. Uh, but it was an unofficial history, and these relied on the Hope Royal Commission's assessment as to what was going on. But the first official confirmation as to what ACES did uh, came this year during uh, our case of the National Archives, mm. uh, when we went up against the archives, who basically are kind of following effectively the, the wishes of the intelligence agencies it's rare or perhaps unheard of for them to re- refuse to, uh, to act along the lines that the intelligence agencies say. Uh, that's, that's, that's what made the National Security Podcast so interesting because David Fricker <coughs> was there being the, the very pleasant, charming... I, I had to make sure it was the same David Fricker after I was listening to him that used to be head of ASIO because he was, all he was talking about was opening and being open and transparent and the liberal democracy and the wonderful thing that is Australian access to information. I had to, I, I, I had to think, David Fricker, the name is not quite Clinton Fernandez or Jacob Grech for that matter. Maybe there's two of them in the bureaucracy, but no, it's the same bloke. Uh, well, uh, uh, David Fricker was Deputy Director General of ASIO and look, to a certain extent, if you wanted uh, to know about your ancestors who fought in the first or second or some other war, then the National Archives is exactly the place for you because you can get your ancestors' um, service details, you can track their history. So when Fricker says that it's an open system, uh, he's referring to that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to matters of high policy, the way the state and, and uh, uh, powerful sectors actually operate, then I think we're uh, far from that an- analysis. Then it becomes a matter of pulling teeth. Right. But again, with, with Chile, and we'll get into the details of it in a, in a bit, but it's my understanding that while you say there have been rumours, it's been, can we, can we use the term an open secret? 
that Australia was involved. Didn't Whitlam himself mention it shortly after he lost? He lost yeah. <clears throat> well, look, um, in 1973 or 1974, there was a, a report about intelligence agencies being involved in Chile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where that came from was an immigration minister in the Whitlam government named Clyde Cameron. Mm-hmm. And as immigration minister, he found out that there were ASIO officers, not ASIS, but Australian Security Intelligence Organization officers, people who work in the domestic area in Australia, who were masquerading as immigration officers wow. in order uh, to vet uh, potential immigrants from Latin America and around the world in, in Australian embassies. And Clyde Cameron protested to Whitlam about that. He thought it was inappropriate to be collecting intelligence on potential immigrants uh, and on immigrants in a manner that could not be collected on people who were not immigrants, who were born in Australia. And so that's when the first hints began coming out that there was some kind of an intelligence presence in our embassies overseas, specifically in Latin America. Now, in 1977, Malcolm Fraser disclosed in Parliament the existence of an organization called ACES. When Gough Whitlam had been opposition leader until the December 1972 election, he had not been told of the existence of ACES. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he became aware of it when he became prime minister. But the official existence of ACES was never disclosed until 1977 by Malcolm Fraser. And Whitlam in that year also said that he cannot deny that uh, ACES was involved in Chile. Now, precisely what that means was never, never revealed. You see, I'd always thought that that meant intelligence gathering through our bases like Pine Gap and the Echelon system, mm, mm, mm. rather than boots on the ground. Yes. Uh, but the first official confirmation uh, came about this year during the declassification uh, co- uh, case in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Now, the tribunal has yet to rule on this case. And so neither you nor I uh, want to be in contempt um, of the tribunal by, by judging or by speculating about um, how they may or may not rule. Uh, but we, but we, can, we, we can discuss what's been released so far. It was released in this fashion. Uh, when the request to the uh, archives was put in in 2017, uh, there was a request. I was a requester. Uh, there was a request for two types of ACES records. One was ACES records on Cambodia, and the other one was ACES records on Chile. And the reason is that the Australian ambassador to Cambodia was Noel Deschamps, D-E-S-C-H-A-M-P-S. You might pronounce it Deschamps, if you don't like the French accent. Noel Deschamps was our ambassador to Cambodia at a time when King uh, Sihanouk was overthrown in a constitutional coup. And he went straight from there to Santiago, Chile, and stayed until Allende was overthrown in a, in a coup, in a real coup, right. in a military coup. And so uh, even back in 1969, at the time of the overthrow of King Sihanouk, there had been uh, rumors that ACES was actually involved in the coup against Sihanouk in Cambodia because <laughs> the United States did not have an embassy there. Their embassy had been ordered shut down after the bombing of Cambodia during the, uh, the, the, the Nixon administration. And so Australia was representing the United States in Cambodia. And so the reason that request was put in uh, to, to ACES records on Cambodia and Chile was it was essentially the same model where uh, Australia goes in, acts as a surrogate of sorts for the United States, and the ambassador goes from one coup to the next coup. Right. Uh, Noel Deschamps then retired from the Foreign Service after, 
the overthrow of Allende, and he went on to lead the Australian Monarchist League. I um, think it's it's probably worth mentioning too that um, before Cambodia, he was in Moscow. I see. It's uh, um, it's a it's a Cold War scenario. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, um, the ASIS's response to that, and the National Archives conveyed it, was that to even um, confirm or deny the existence of such records back in 1969, 1970, and so on would harm Australia's security today. Right. And um, that and claim was challenged. Why. They don't need to say why. Uh, that's right. Because... Uh, uh, to say why they say would, would actually reveal the real information. Uh, but that, that claim was challenged. And eventually the question of Chile came up uh, in the first week of June this year. Mm-hmm. And the Attorney General, Michaelia Cash, signed a certificate, which she's entitled to do on the Nas- under the Archives Act, that excludes the applicant, in this case myself, uh, from even hearing uh, the government's reasons as to why... Uh, uh, these records should not be released. Uh, the government is allowed to make closed submissions, which you're never allowed to see. Only the tribunal is allowed to see it. Uh, and uh, you're supposed to make your submissions in the open. But then you get a chance to ask a few questions of the ACES people and the archives people. And so uh, when the tribunal uh, hearing opened in June this year, it was a four or five day hearing, I think. Uh, and at the end of day one, I think it became clear that some of the extreme versions of neither confirm nor deny could not be sustained in, even in the closed hearings because questions would be asked, you know, how come you can't answer these, these obvious questions? And so um, at the end of day one, at least this is how we experienced it. At the end of day one, we were handed a, a, a big lever arch folder of about 600, 700 pages, many of them blacked out. And they turn out to have been every ACES station report from that era. They actually reveal um, the fact that ACES set up a station uh, at the behest of the CIA, that they spied on Allende and the Chilean government at the behest of the CIA, uh, and that they acted as a go-between as well to the CIA and the Pinochet coup plotters. And they, uh, and they ran, I think the word is, the, um, the CIA operatives who were interfering and who were collecting the information. Well, that, that information is still uh, under wraps. And so we're hoping that the administrative okay. tribunal is considering that aspect. Of it. Sorry. Uh, you know, but uh, what we know from that, so the, the, what they have released so far is the first official confirmation that in fact, ACES was in Chile, um, that it did what I just said it did, uh, spied on, on Allende, acted as a go-between between the Pinochet forces uh, and the CIA. Uh, and we know things like uh, the safe houses they were trying to get, uh, the cars they wanted to, to buy, uh, even the safe. We, we actually know the combination of the safe that they, <laughs> <laughs> they have. still sitting around somewhere. And... Indeed, indeed, in some, in some uh, uh, disposal store in, uh, in a second-hand outlet somewhere. But the point being, uh, it's no longer speculation. We now know that that's why they were involved, that, that, that they were involved. Uh, and I think it's important to understand that the same Australian government that sent troops to Vietnam to uphold American aims there, namely stopping social transformation in Southeast Asia, yes. is, this, is the same government that sent its intelligence agencies to Chile 
to uphold American aims there, namely stopping social transformation in Latin America. Yep. And that fundamental rationale is sometimes missed by historians of Australia's foreign relations, because uh, historians who write only on, on defense or foreign affairs, they rely on the defense and foreign affairs sections of the cabinet papers. But what they miss is the underlying rationale for strategic policy and its place in the integrated government picture. Because history is written within the policy silos. Yes, they can criticize this or that government error or blunder, but they can't provide an overarching explanatory framework within which all these individual policies are actually quite rational. So it may look odd that we are so far away in Chile, and it may look odd that we're, you know, we're sending troops to Vietnam, but actually it's the same Australian government that's doing it. And so uh, it's doing for the same objectives. The objectives are to uphold what we might call the rules-based international order, because that rules-based international order is a euphemism for a US-led imperial system. But you can't say empire, that's taboo. No, I mean, the way I put it is they make the rules and the rest of us follow the orders. <laughs> well, the, 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 the phrase rules-based international order is repeated ad infinitum mm. uh, by the commentariat in the National Security Chinstrokers. But it's never explained what that is. And I think... It's been, re- fairly re- it's been a fairly recent um, introduction, this um, rules-based order three three-word phrase. I mean, yes, it's, it's in, it basically it's around the time of the Rudd government and the global financial crisis, around the 2008 period. Yeah, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a new three-word phrase, but it's the same old neo-imperialism that's always been. Well, I, I, okay, so here I want to explain what I mean by a US-led imperial system. Oh. Okay. Uh, if you're from uh, uh, the, the traditional uh, Russian Revolution type of Leninist thinking, uh, then I've got nothing for you because I'm not going to uh, get into uh, what Lenin might have said about imperialism more than 100 years ago. I don't prefer to genuflect before that God. And if he was alive today, he'd probably disagree with it. <laughs> well, I mean, my point is one doesn't need to genuflect before those gods in order to understand yeah. something that's actually quite simple. So an empire is not simply where a powerful state physically occupies another society and plants its own flag and rules it directly. An empire is defined as follows. It is the effective control of other countries' political sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You don't have to occupy that country physically, like put in place your own governor general or the viceroy like the British did during the Indian during India's part of the British Empire, the British Raj, uh, you don't have to rule it directly, but rather you have to control their political sovereignty. That's, that's, that's the idea of an empire. Yes. Now, and you can control other countries' political sovereignties in a number of ways. You can do it militarily by the threat of force. You can intimidate countries like Iran, for example, by telling it that you know, all options are on the table. And if you're a nuclear power like the United States, then you know what that means. Um, you can do it through intelligence operations, such as uh, uh, spying on the government of East Timor uh, in order to get access to its oil. Uh, that, that's the use of intelligence operations in order to control Timor's political sovereignty. That's imperialism. Of course. You, you can do it through free trade agreements uh, by protecting the intellectual property rights of uh, companies like, say, pharmaceutical corporations, which then prevent the third world countries 
from developing uh, vaccines because uh, the vaccines are protected by intellectual property agreements. Mm -hmm. So that's a control of their political sovereignty. Uh, you can do it through investor state dispute settlement provisions in, in investment treaties, uh, which means that uh, you know, a, a, a corporation doesn't have to go through the local courts. It can go through a private arbitration tribunal. So an imperial system is simply a system in which one state controls the political sovereignty of a number of other countries. And in this sense, the United States sits at the apex of an hierarchically structured imperial system. It, there are junior powers like France, for example, uh, which has its own imperial system in French-speaking Africa yeah. uh, and in parts of the South, uh, parts of the Pacific as well. And there are other junior powers, imperial powers like Britain, uh, which acts uh, essentially as a, uh, I think the, the word is lieutenant or lieutenant uh, to the United States. But then there are sub-imperial powers which have their own empires, but but that uphold uh, the imperial system uh, uh, you know, that the United States presides over. And Australia, Israel, and Singapore, for example, are classic sub-imperial powers, uh, which have the ability to project force overseas, the ability to conduct sophisticated intelligence operations, highly educated citizenry, pro-American uh, um, public opinion, um, and, and domination of the region, or high, high levels of influence in the region, whilst intervening even outside the region in defense of that empire. And, now, and we're yeah, seeing that too with the sub-imperial powers also grouped together underneath the yes. apex, like we're seeing, for example, with the Quad at the moment. Well, exactly. And so what you've got then is um, the, the sending of, of, of ACES officers to Chile to help the CIA overthrow Allende is not some boutique matter or some esoteric aspect. <clears throat> it's actually connected to the war in Vietnam, just as uh, intelligence operations today are connected to uh, the, the new Cold War with China. It's essentially the same government acting using different instruments of statecraft. There are the overt instruments of statecraft, like sending in troops, sending in aircraft, buying submarines, buying frigates and destroyers. Uh, but then there are the covert instruments of statecraft, like intelligence operations, espionage, uh, electronic surveillance, things like that. But these things should not be viewed separately. Uh, they are being ordered by the same government and governments. And, and I've got to put in at this, at this point and skip us along a bit that all listeners, and um, a shameless plug for you, Clinton, all listeners said, please get your hands on a copy of Ireland off the coast of Asia where um, Clinton outlines in chapter and verse the... the the triggers behind a lot of Australian foreign policy in the 20th century. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. And then has gone on to write, I mean, was it Arena magazine last month? Yes, I wrote, a book, I wrote an article called uh, The Rules-Based Order. The rules and the idea is to basically point out that the rules-based order is a euphemism for empire. Yeah, of course. Now let's get back to, to the Chile Papers. Um, okay. Um. One thing that surprised me about, about it was Gough Whitlam saying that when he was going to, when he wanted to close the, close the operation, shut the operation down, he didn't want, he was worried that America was going to see this as, a, as an insult and that he wanted to assure them that he wasn't anti-American and all this yes. kind of paper. That's not really the image that we have of, um, no. of Gough. No. Okay. So, um, in what he's said publicly, uh, Mr. Whitlam uh, presented it as something that he found out about 
when he became prime minister, which is true. He found out about it because uh, Billy McMahon, as prime minister before him, had, had agreed to the ACES operation. But then he engaged, I think Whitlam then engaged in an elaborate exercise in opinion management. Uh, he uh, made it look like uh, he shut it down as soon as he found out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact, uh, the reality is uh, he put um, support for U.S. great power objectives above uh, solidarity with a fellow social democrat like Salvador Allende. And it was only because of a lot of pressure inside the cabinet from people like Clyde Cameron and a few other people who realized what was going on. He realized that this, Whitlam realized this thing could not be sustained uh, for any great period. It would, it would leak. And so he ordered it shut down. And one of the things that was happening at the time was that he'd ordered a Royal Commission into the use of Australia's intelligence agencies like the Hope Royal Commission. Yeah. And so he was able to use those things to, to kind of keep the lid on uh, this information leaking out. But yes, his number one priority was to ensure that the United States would not be upset. And is that, um, well, we can only conjecture, who knows what Goff was thinking. And who knows what Goff was thinking when he accepted his dismissal, for that matter. But um, is that because, I mean, I can only conjecture that's because that he didn't want to upset the Americans because he saw that what they were doing with the Allende, they could just as easily do as him. Uh, you're really, uh, you're, uh, once again, what you're saying is not implausible. <laughs> of course. Uh, no, it's not. I'm serious. It's not implausible at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, but the question that I have is, uh, I would need more evidence to come down decisively on that. But, yeah. what's, but, but what is important is the other thing that you're alluding to. Namely, how does the commentariat react to what they perceive to be the facts? And here, the commentariat has reacted by doing everything it can to say the United States had no involvement in the dismissal of Gulf Whitlam. Now, I, I, think, I think given the, the number of insistences that that is true and should not be questioned, I think we are in the in the presence of yet another taboo. Yeah. But but the question of Chile, if you if you don't mind, I think we should go into what it is the, even the Nixon administration was trying to achieve. In, and, the few, and then, in the few minutes we have left. Yes, yeah. I mean, um, what Salvador Allende was trying to do was uh, nationalize in a in a very incremental manner, in a slow manner, uh, the copper and the telecommunications industries, uh, because the wealth of Chile. Uh, was in copper and in mining, uh, and they were owned by foreign companies. Uh, for example, Kennecott and Anaconda were the two American companies that owned Chile's uh, uh, copper industry. Uh, now, Nixon didn't care that much about copper. Yes, of course, he was upset about it. But what he, he had an imperial sense that if this sort of thing goes on, then it'll give confidence to a number of other countries to do. And we can't have that. Yes. So it's, it's, it's in order to preserve that system, uh, namely a US-led imperial system, that Allende was overthrown and Pinochet was uh, was brought in, and uh, that's that's the core point. Rather that, rather than copper in and of itself, it was yes. about the maintenance of empire. Exactly, I think it's important to not be too uh, to f- fixated on economics, dollars and cents. Uh, you know, just as um, uh, you know, you, you don't get the point of why you'd even have the Iraq War if you just focus on the costs of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how, how much it's cost. No, the aim is to establish uh, a power base in the Middle East there, and the costs don't matter because they are shared across the society as a whole. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that the case of Chile and even Australia's role in that is in a similar vein. Okay. Um, 
Now, just in a, we've only got a minute or two left, Clinton, but um, a couple of things I wanted to mention. Um, back when uh, Australian Federal Police raided the um, ABC and um, Smedhurst, uh, Murdoch journalists, undies draw, um, I remember an article appeared in the New York Times saying that Australia had one of the most repressive or outrageous, I can't remember the exact word they use, secrecy regimes. We're the most secretive democracy in the world, yeah. The most secretive democracy in the world. Is there, Can you see any any change to that coming up? And, uh, that, that requires public organisation and pressure. But there's a reason for that, you know. It's not just some uh, odd feature about Australia. This is what it means to be a sub-imperial power. You don't want to have... Uh, parliament or other aspects that represent the public to be involved in the decision-making. In that sense, it's like a local council uh, being told by the chief of police of the, of the state government, we're doing an operation in your area. Nobody else is to know. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. On that, we're going to have to leave it now, Clinton. Thank you for the opportunity, Jacob. Um, that's the half hour that's been allotted to me that they still can allot to you in um, the voices like voices like ours in this uh, most secret democracy in the world. And we ought, we ought to be thankful for it, I guess. Um, you've been listening to Community Radio 3CR 855. I've been Jacob Grek, as always. Clinton's been Clinton Fernandez. And um, hopefully we'll have him, we'll have you back on the show. Next time, Clinton. When look um, forward to it. Look forward. I, to it. I see that you've also one of the media articles I read said that you'd put in uh, freedom of information for documents on Indonesia as well. Oh, oh yes, but it's a you know it's a uh, kind of a normal research project that I'm involved in. So it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. Okay, we'll both leave you with that ongoing thing, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Bye.